Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is, I'll call you, John, a new old friend. Uh, <laughs> and uh, John and I had a chance to catch up a few weeks ago. We had a great uh, catch up. We love his company, OpenX. Uh, and our guest today is the CEO of OpenX, John Gentry. So welcome, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Looking forward uh, to it. Great to have you. So, John, so, so many places to start with you, and we're going to dig into what's happening at OpenX, uh, one of the companies that's genuinely redefining where the industry is and, more importantly, where we're going. Uh, but I'd love to go back a little bit and talk about your early days working at the Walt Disney Company back in the 90s. And we just did an event, I think we talked about it when we caught up a few weeks ago on the convergence of the entertainment business, the brand world and the streaming world. And in a very short period of time, we've seen that industry get shaken by its ankles completely, business models uh, at the very least shaken, if not annihilated. And I'd love to get some of your early reflections in those early sort of emerging digital, but really pre-digital days working on distribution strategy back with what was then Disney, ABC, cable networks. Great. Yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing time. I had left business school. I knew I wanted to do something different than what kind of all my business school colleagues were doing. And I, that brought me to Discovery Communications. I got in the cable network business because at that time, this is mid-90s, the cable networks were hot. They were interesting. They were scaling. And uh, so that, that was the Discovery Networks, you know, the Discovery Channel, Learning Channel, et cetera. And then I had met with Disney when I was looking at different opportunities, and they called me up after about two years and asked me if I wanted to come over and play a role with them on their strategic side within the cable network business. And, uh, and so that's what I ended up doing. And my job was really to work with uh, the team that was responsible for driving distribution of networks, kind of more in a strategy role. So I worked with the head of the group, spent a lot of time working with the strategic planning group um, at, at corporate and really mapping out kind of how Disney was thinking about this TV thing, not traditional TV, because they'd obviously they'd already bought ESPN by this time, they had ABC, but really much more around kind of cable networks and how they were thinking about that. And John, we shared a major, I know you went to UCLA, I went to uh, Emory in Atlanta. How does a guy, a BA in political science, make this pivot into media and ultimately technology? Interesting you know, academic, my major was political science and sociology, so quite similar. Uh, but you went down a, a, a path that was, I would say, in many respects, disconnected from that. Yeah, totally disconnected. Honestly, I think that for me, it was really, I enjoyed the, the major at UCLA. And then I got out, and I worked in real estate, which I had some relationships that kind of led to that job. And then I went back and got my MBA. The reason I got my MBA was not so much to have an MBA as it was to kind of hit reset on what I was going to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something that was a lot more, I uh, call it interesting and, uh, and, you know, innovative and kind of be on the early curve of some things. And that led me into at the time, which was, you know, early, which is cable television and ultimately led me into the internet. But the, the things I was looking for at the time were really kind of anchored around the characteristics of the kind of company I would join. So I wanted a place where if you were good, you could move up. I wanted a place where you could learn stuff that not everybody else had. So kind of, you know, in those days for cable TV or subsequently when I was in the internet, those opportunities where you go into some place where nobody's yet figured it out means that no matter what age you are, you can learn, you can learn about an industry or an area or a sector. And there's nobody there who's been doing it for 20 years ahead of you, which creates a lot of both career opportunity, economic opportunity, but most importantly for me, 
it made it really fun and interesting because if you were good, you could get a lot more opportunity to kind of lead and grow and drive new things. So that's kind of what led me into the cable television area. And that's kind of how I ended up at Disney uh, subsequent to getting into the internet was that focus on finding things that I felt were different and new and where I could go in and get ahead of the curve or ahead of the pack by finding kind of emerging areas versus things that people have played in for a very long time. Uh, I love that story. And your next move, you end up at one of the places that probably goes in sort of a rare category of most influential and also most forgotten, which was Overture. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Overture, originally titled GoTo.com. Um, original Bill Gross, who's still somewhat well-known, uh, Bill Gross in, in Pasadena, had this idea of taking ads and putting them in search results but wasn't quite sure how to do it. I spoke to the folks at, at GoTo at the time, which became Overture, and interviewed with them, and they were looking for a head of ad sales. And I came over to lead the ad sales team and realized pretty quickly I couldn't sell an ad on our site unless we had more traffic because we're, by definition, just like you know the, the, the comparable today, what, what Overture turned into over time was you know, really the what we call um, you know, search ads. It's, it's, we pioneered the entire search ads category. So... Uh, pretty quickly when I was at GoTo, I realized I wasn't going to scale unless we had more inventory. So I was the guy that built the team to go out and kind of convince the internet that this was a good idea. And that started with going to a company called Ask Jeeves. And they said, look, we're riffing through it. And uh, one of the co-founders of OpenX, a guy named Jason Fairchild, was working with me at the time. And you know, he came up with the idea of, why don't we just give you two ads at the top of the search page? But those two ads are going to be tied to that search query. And Jeeves said, oh, that makes sense. I can do that. I don't want all my pages to be full of ads, but a couple ads makes a lot of sense. And once we did that, we found that you got a lot of clicks. If you, if you had relevant ads, you know, relevant search listings at the top, you got a lot of clicks really quickly. And then that was kind of the, the core idea that obviously took many years after that. But we subsequently took to Microsoft and Yahoo, um, you know, kind of across the landscape, AOL most famously, who later switched on us back to Google but scaled the company tremendously and really pioneered the idea of advertising search results. I mean, I was, I was on a call with Sergey at, uh, at Google talking about search results. And he was like, John, we don't like advertising. We will do no evil. And, uh, you know, a little bit later he decided that, you know, they decided they liked advertising a bit more than that. So it was kind of funny. So uh, some big words there and some real high impact, uh, and warrants digging a little deeper creating the whole business of search advertising in those early days and your comment about you know having to drive enough traffic so people would see it you know juxtaposed against today where we are in 2023 the size and scale and impact of that business enormous right uh enormous. absolutely enormous. Yeah. talk about those early days it was a little bit wild westy and you know trying to explain stuff then that today is a given oh it was um it was absolutely wild west and the, the things that would come up, you wouldn't, you know, you had to figure out solutions for that all exist today. So one example would be, how do you handle the fact that some companies are going to camp on somebody else's keyword? So, you know, Chevrolet is going to, going to go in and try and buy Ford's keyword. How do you handle that? How do you think about that? What are the, are there legal issues in that or not? We didn't know. Um, when we were first going out to do, uh, we had the SEC show up one day, call us up and say, wait a minute, we think this might not be truthful advertising. And I ended up flying back to DC and spending time with the SEC talking about what can we call these things, these, these ad links at the top of a search page 
Um, I think at the time it was sponsored results, but that was a that was a multi-day in the in the uh, conference room at the SEC's office. They wanted to call them paid ads, and you know, and we're like, yes, they're ads, but they're but they're targeted. They're actually incredibly relevant to what the user is looking for. Um, all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, we we found the whole idea of traffic quality, kind of modern traffic quality, if you will, really came out of that because you had these situations where people would go in and and you know bid on basically their own results. I mean, you, you, you saw all kinds of crazy stuff in the traffic quality stuff that you had to clean up. Later, when I came to OpenX, we hired some of the folks that had done traffic quality for us in the search business, and we kind of led led that stuff here in the programmatic world. But it was um. It was a lot of fun. It was a crazy time. It was a uh, transformational, as you pointed out. I mean, look, it's arguably the most powerful advertising model out there. I mean, I think that it's 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 certainly stood the test of time. And going in and meeting with you know senior folks at Microsoft and trying to explain to them why this makes sense. Yahoo in the early days said, you know, there was a huge contingent in the internet at that point in time that was like, no, the internet must be pure. It can't be, have advertising. It was a big thing. And uh, fortunately for us, in the year, I think it was about 2000, uh, maybe, yeah, not 2000, about the, they had a big softening period of the internet. And when that softening happened, all of a sudden the business teams were like, wait a minute, what's that thing again? And we walked into AOL and said, we'll write you a check for $50 million. And we're like, oh, we want to learn more about this now. And that kind of helped us crack the nut. And, you know, similar patterns have emerged over time in what we've seen in programmatic, right? When we first came out with programmatic, the big publishers didn't want anything to do with it. And it wasn't until you saw the big advertisers seeing the benefit of it and the amount of scale that can be dropped, put behind it that we started seeing the larger publishers adopt it. So it's, it's interesting to kind of watch these patterns over time in advertising. Going back to something you said earlier about what you were looking for in terms of attributes of the types of companies where you wanted to work, where you, know, you work hard, you get a chance to advance up the ladder. Go back, you mentioned Ash Jeeves. There were so many other companies from that era who didn't make it. Some right. did, many did not. Reflecting on that era, John, what do you think the attributes were of the companies that made it? And what would you say in general terms about the ones that didn't make it? Well, I think I'd probably put it in a couple of buckets. I think the, the well-known ones that made it, right? The, uh, the overtures, which obviously eventually turned into Yahoo Search uh, and Microsoft search actually, the overtures of the world, the Ebays of the world, kind of the well-known early ones often cracked a certain type of model that was unique to the internet and was gonna prove to be valuable. And then you got into a whole bunch of other applications, the Ask Jeeves of the world and others. And I think what we saw was those who could provide true client benefit, and this is just as true today in programmatic, those that can actually provide a service that leads to true true, true client benefit where, where, uh, where the client really wants to come back to you again and again, whether that be a publisher or an advertiser. Those were the ones that had staying power. What we saw a lot of in those days, given the excitement around the internet, which was unbelievable, like it was a moment in time, you know, in history, was that a lot of companies and admittedly a lot of investors made a lot of money by just throwing huge amounts of dollars at things. And, and in the kind of the kind of momentum mindset, uh, some of those got bought for very large dollars. Some of them, you know, made a lot of money. Uh, but in terms of the sustainable ones, it was generally you were providing some clear aspect of ongoing value that that customer saw, whether that be, like I said, an advertiser or a publisher, whoever it was on the side of the ecosystem. But we did see a lot of frothy money in there. And I think we've seen it since then, too. You see certain business models pop up and a ton of money pours in and, and, uh, and then it kind of gets leveled out a bit. 
And you mentioned this, but you know, that was search uh, advertising. And back in those days, search and display, as it was known, lived in separate lands. I remember we did something for Yahoo. Remember David Kornstedt? Yeah, David, David came over and worked with us at Overture. Yeah, great guy. So when David was leading Overture, which would become, as you said, Yahoo Search, we did a big event for Yahoo. This must have been 2005, 2006, 2007, somewhere in there. And it was called One uh, in recognition of the merging of yeah. the sales yeah. orgs from both search and display into one org, which at that time was viewed as a wild notion and a very progressive one at that. Can you believe, you know, where we've gone since then, reflecting on the growth of the industry? No, it's fascinating, right? I, I look now, say, so, you know, going back to those Disney days when I was working at Disney on TV and we were talking about the ideas of, you know, could you actually target an ad in different ways and all these kinds of things? I look now at what that was like just, you know, 20 years ago and looking at now what we're doing in, in connected television, right? And the amount of uh, integration there, the data targeting, the what you can do with CTV today versus what TV was like, you know, even 10 years ago is shocking. And I think the the, the trends over time and the combination and how, how advertisers can think about the marketplace, it's, it's all unbelievable, honestly. It's, it's the speed at which it's all taken place. To us, it seems actually like a fairly decently long time, but in the scheme of anything, it's been rapidly fast. Yeah, no, it, it sure has. Uh, so you, you pivot from there and then, uh, still at a pretty young age, John, become chief revenue officer at Green Dot yep. uh, and overseeing a pretty big portfolio there. Can we talk a little about that tenure and then as well, because um, I do want to make sure that we have plenty of time to dig in hard on OpenX, but also talk about your tenure uh, doing uh, a similar job, but as president uh, overseeing everything at SpotRunner. Sure. So Green Dot was an interesting one. I, I had uh, I had left Overture. I was taking time off. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, actually a guy who's at Magnet right, right now, Eric Ovanik, was at Green Dot, called me up and said, hey, this is a really interesting company. They've invented the prepaid debit card. So this is the idea you can go into a market and put money on a prepaid debit card versus having to work through traditional banking systems. And it was a really innovative idea and a, a great idea and had achieved a bunch of scale. And what made it really interesting is that um, uh, Mike Moritz from Sequoia was, was the main guy behind it. So like, you know, he was one of the main massive VC guys in the Valley at that point in time. And I went over, I didn't spend a lot of time there. I spent about a year and a half there. I, I thought that it was very interesting, very exciting. It turned out to be a great place for me to spend some time. The company did very well. Um, but the pace and the dynamics of, while it was, yes, anchored in tech in some ways, it was still very much a tied to the banking and retail industries. And if you want to talk about a change in speed, go from working at a, you know, an innovative technology company that is literally bringing new models to market daily to working in a business where you're working with large retailers, picture Walgreens and companies like that, and you're working with banks like Citibank. And the speed, the speed thing was what I struggled with was it, you want to move fast, you want to get things done. And it wasn't bad. It was just those businesses had been around for a very long time. So they just operated differently. So I didn't find that as it charged me up as much. And that's why I ended up leaving to go to SpotRunner. Uh, SpotRunner, which was a really interesting business, kind of ahead of its time, but also had some turbulence around it. But the core idea was to take some of the ideas we pioneered at Overture around being able to really pick your advertising and bring that into the television business. And got a lot of traction early on, raised a bunch of money early on. 
Um, and the, the whole premise was, let's find a way that advertisers can really target much more clearly what they want to buy versus buying TV on a bulk basis. So the, the whole idea was, could we do that at the cable, you know, cable slash zip code level versus having advertisers have to buy broadcast television, which is obviously the, the smallest area you can buy broadcast in general was DMA, right? So in LA, that means a $25,000 buy is your minimum. Whereas if you could do it in the cable, you could cut it way down. But I think that what we what we found there over time was we were just we we're just ahead of our time. I think today you're seeing a lot of those companies do that stuff. But at the time, we were very disruptive to the industry. It was a mature industry that had a way it wanted to operate, and we couldn't bring about enough change because we weren't we weren't in a position to influence enough change across the industry. The large established, whether it be the cable sales teams or the uh, the executives all liked it. The, the kind of the uh, the folks, think, you know, the, the innovators of the companies liked our idea, but I think there was just a lot of concern about transitioning the way the business was being run for so long to, to becoming, to putting a lot more control in the hands of the buyer, creating a lot more visibility and control in the hands of the buyer around what they would buy and what it would look like. So that was, that was a real challenge to fight our way through. It didn't, it, the company ultimately didn't work out. We ended up selling it off. And you then begin what is now almost a 12-year tenure, an unusually long <laughs> period of time, yeah. uh, at OpenX, rising up the ladder, first as president, now at CEO. We've been lucky enough to work with OpenX all over the world. You've been a great, great partner of ours and some really spectacular dinners with your team all over the world in particular. And uh, in addition to the contributions you and your team have made on our thought leadership stage. And my dominant takeaway, John, is there's a lot of people out there playing the quantity game, a lesser number of people playing the quality game. And as the largest independent at Exchange Network, that's been a big part of your tenure there. Talk about your philosophical view that underpins that and where we are now and what really you have genuine points of differentiation in a very competitive marketplace. Uh, I'd love to dig into there, but let's start with how you got to OpenX. We'd be remiss not to tell sure. that story. Sure. Look, the two, the two founders of OpenX, the guys that took it from being a kind of a, an open source product in the UK here in the US and, and started with both an ad server and really came up, they didn't invent it. They were right at the, right at the door with everybody else and invented the idea of RTB, right? Real-time bitted programmatic. Uh, were Tim Cadogan and Jason Fairshaw. And Tim Cadogan and Jason both worked with me at Overture for years. We were all very close. Uh, I'd been on the beach for a while after Spot Runner. They called me up and said, would you come in and help us out a bit? I said, I'll come in as a consultant. So I initially came in as a consultant in 12. We just started kind of nosing around the company and they, threw me, they trusted me completely. So threw me on the exec team and we started digging into things. And the company had a tremendous amount of opportunity, a lot of things happening was really at the front edge of kind of the explosion of programmatic, which was incredibly exciting. And right after we saw that explosion of programmatic, we also saw kind of some of the similar trends we'd seen in the search business. Things like, now, how do we think about managing quality, right? How do you make sure that you're not putting a buyer onto a bad domain? So we jumped hard on quality early on to really make sure that we were not going to be putting, you know, a buyer into a, a bad experience uh, in any way. And then it's been really interesting to watch the evolution of this space over the years. You know, if you go back, you know, I, I, was, I went full-time in 13. We were driving hard in quality at that point in time. You know, 15 to 17 was really the rise of header bidding. We invented that. Um, 
And that was a crazy time. It was both a really great time for the company in terms of scaling and opening up our relationships, the number of relationships with, with publishers. Uh, at the same time, it was very disruptive, right? Like it was hugely disruptive specifically to Google and to um, uh, Magnite, you know, formerly Rubicon Project at the time. And we saw a lot of great growth coming through there. And then as we walked into, call it the 17, 18 time period, we saw real, post-header bidding, we saw a real perception of, wait, is all this stuff commoditized? Is it all the same thing? Let's just drop fees. Everybody should drop fees. And we were playing some defense for a couple of years in there because unlike uh, Magnite, who had gone public already, but Matic had already offshored everything to India, or in the case of um, some of our larger competitors, they had the funds to take those fee drops and still drive in. We did. We had to do that on a slower basis than some of the competition. And our response to that was not so much to, we've got to build a lower cost business such that we can operate low, lower fees. Although we did do that primarily by two big moves. One, we went completely into the Google Cloud. Uh, and the second being that we moved a bunch of our team over to Krakow where you can get better economics on engineers. So we created a more efficient business. But our real focus during that time was, hey, the, while there is a lot of actual differentiation, the market's not seeing it. How do we create real long-term differentiation that's core to the marketplace? And that led us down the path of identity, down the path of data, really you know, thinking about what is now called supply-side targeting, but the idea of really building a graph at the supply side, a graph that can be a hub, not only for a buyer to come in and, and target their users across a, a given segment of inventory, but also for a publisher to be able to understand more about their actual inventory. Or what we've seen more recently is we've got a lot of you know, third-party data companies that have come in to work with us and they see what we built and they're like, we can map into this in a way we can't necessarily do it in other places. Uh, good examples are a recent press release we just did with Oracle, who chose us specifically because they because of what we built in our CTV graph and their ability to move their audiences into that and target their audiences efficiently. So yeah, we've done a, you know, along that similar timeline, uh, kind of, we talked more about it in the last year, but we started it back in that timeline, sustainability. We thought we thought we went to cloud, that this could be an interesting thing in terms of driving to become a more sustainable company, lowering our carbon emissions. And uh, and that's been a great, great ride. It's been a fascinating ride. And I think that ad tech right now is an interesting space. Um, we've kind of followed the traditional path. We hired in some, a really good uh, person to help guide us through it so we can understand all the things that have been done in the market broadly. Um, and we've actually gone down the path. We pledged the net, the net zero pledge with SBTI. We achieved that. We dropped our emissions by 96%. Um, and I think it's interesting right now in ad tech, there's a lot of conversations about what does sustainability mean? Um, people are coming up with their own ideas. They're coming up with their own approaches. They're coming up with their own measurement. So I think we're in an interesting period where we have to consolidate that uh, and really get that right. And then more recently, what's been a ton of fun is the growth in CTV. You know, that was something that we always wanted to dive into, but it took a combination of things, um, you know, and all those different things we've built over time, whether it's the identity spine or the graph or what we've done with sustainability or kind of some of those data partners we've brought in. Those have all led to CTV, you know, premium CTV providers saying, you're bringing me something different. You know, you're not just reselling my inventory. You're actually going out and adding something to the mix with what you're doing on the data side. Um, we'd like to work with you. So it's been, we've been really pleased by that. And we're kind of just, just having a lot of fun right now, scaling that out. So to your point, you know, you got to be different, right? I, I would argue you had to have differentiation all along. And this is another phase of the differentiation, but you got to do it. You know, it's, it's, it really matters. I love the whole sustainability path that you've gone down and it 
one of the advertising weeks, um, um, I should know this, uh, it might have been Advertising Week Europe. I know we had connected your team then to the Advertising Association, the creators of Ad Net Zero, which you guys really embraced. And I remember subsequent to that, the language that I heard was, you know, the first carbon neutral platform of our kind. And I said, that's, that sounds impressive, but I don't really understand what that means intellectually. I know, right. enough, I know enough to be dangerous, but not much more than that. Dig in, John, explain what that really means, because it's so interesting. So there's a path you take. This is one of the interesting things I mentioned the ad tech's going through a lot of different things right now. Um, people are saying, hey, we need to eliminate resellers, or people are saying we need to measure this way. Or we, and the reality is in sustainability, this is, these practices, these principles have been out there for decades, right? It's, it's not a new thing to want to lower carbon emissions. I think that advertising is really starting to lean into it now, but it's been out there for decades. The approach we have taken is to say, what are the global practices and standards that exist? The things being discussed at COP, you know, the things being discussed at, at you know, global summits on these things. And how do we align to that? So that's what we went out to, to do. And, and it's, a, it's a set of stages that the first thing it begins with is measuring your emissions. And then taking that measurement and running it by a third party to verify that you've done it the right way. So it's not, you're not grading your own homework. And then once you've done that, look at how much you've reduced, how much can you reduce? Look at whether or not you want to offset, how much you want to, might want to offset, where you go out and obviously pay for an offset to some of the carbon because nobody can get completely carbon free. In our case, through a combination of moving the whole entire company to work from home, moving into Google Cloud, Google's the largest buyer of renewable energy in the world, you know, and some other things we've done as a company, travel, et cetera, we dropped our emissions from 2018 to 2021 by about 95%. And so then we offset the rest of that, but the net of that is that, you know, a dollar running through OpenX is going to have the lowest carbon impact of a dollar running through anybody. Um, and my view on this is that this is not like every other thing we compete on. My view on this is we need to share information, we need to get to common standards. The largest partners we have in this industry, whether it be the brands like Adidas and Unilever, whether it be the agencies like a, a WPP, whether it be the largest publishers out there, they are all going after this in a very structured way following global standards. And it's on all of us that are in the industry as providers to them to, to be in alignment with global standards such that when they look to us and say, can I trust your numbers? Can I look at what you're doing? If I have to report to the SEC in the United States, can I, can I actually trust that those numbers are in alignment and being calculated the right way? And part of that is getting that one, the measurement right, but the other part is getting that those third-party verifications in place. So, such an interesting area. And you're really putting your money where your mouth is because, well, of course, this is all underpinned by technology. It's driven by people and your people. You just made a big hire to be a head of global sustainability for EMEA. Um, you're investing in people, in resources. And, John, I think in your case, really putting your money where your mouth is. Yeah, look, we're, we're committed to this. I think one of, the, one of my comments I'll make inside the company is no one's going to get yelled at from drinking out of a plastic water bottle because I want it to be done in a, in a scaled, structured, meaningful way. I don't want this to turn into any sort of a, um, there's too much, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, but too, too, too much criticism, right? People are so eager to criticize. And I think let's, let's all align around doing the right thing and how we're going to do the right thing. I think what I under, underestimated it when we kicked this off was how much it would matter to our team. You know, probably most, one of the most satisfying things about doing this outside of the satisfaction of trying to, you know, make things better for the world 
is how much the team values and appreciates that as a company, we care about this. And um, they've really leaned in, they value it, they sit behind it. And uh, so we're always thinking about ways we can do stuff better. But it's, um, I'd say, it's a, as you said, it's a fascinating area. And I think the advertising business has a lot of work to do to figure out how we do it right, how we do it in a way that works with all of the, all the global standards. Yeah, and we also over-index on influence and are right. able not only to control what we do within our own companies, but to influence and change behavior more broadly. Absolutely. Uh, and Absolutely. We're, we're huge fans of what you're doing there, of what uh, Steve Woodford and the AA team have created with AdNet Zero. Uh, we were just together a few weeks ago in London, and we, are, we were very happy that they launched AdNet Zero in America with us at Advertising Week last October. That's a, uh, it's a great and, initiative. That's what yeah. we need. We need that yeah. industry consolidation. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Talk about, John, the challenge of leading the company, a global company, in this new remote world. It's very different from the days at Disney or Overture and some of those earlier you know, technology-related gigs that you had as a chief revenue officer, ultimately as a president. Uh, you guys are humming along and doing really well. It's a different way of doing things. It's a radically different way of doing things. And I, I, I my personal belief is uh, it is told how good it is or how much it values depends a lot on the individual company. I think the fact that we're not a huge company helps us in terms of remote because it creates, a, it's much easier for us to all keep each other accountable and be engaging with each other. Uh, we are looking for ways to incent face-to-face uh, -face, uh, engagement as much as possible. So for example, our New York office, everyone there, if they're going to come in the office, they all come in on Wednesdays. Um, whenever I travel to a region, I try and you know, see if people want to come in because we all know the value of being, you know, the, the, I can't, it's such a funny thing because, you know, I couldn't have described it to you before we were fully remote, but now I can absolutely see the dynamic nature of conversation, the way that converse, the way that ideas can free flow how you can have, it's just a very different conversation in person, right? I mean, you take, take a lot of type A people, there's a lot of over-talking, which is okay. And it's interesting. It's dynamic and ideas are free flowing on a screen. That doesn't happen. Everybody's got to wait their turn. So it kind of just changes the tone and the energy in the room. So I think it's, um, it's been a good thing for us. Our employees value it tremendously, which matters a lot to us. Um, and I think they also though see and, and value the time together. So we're trying to find that mix of, uh, being, you know, default remote, but to the great, to you know, to the greatest degree we can find real constructive opportunities for for face to face. Great stuff. And John, you mentioned the uh, Oracle supply side CTV targeting uh, announcement, which was fairly recent. If we're doing this again in a year, what do you think we'll be talking about? That will be an evolution of something, or something that's completely different. I think we'll be talking a lot about CTV. I think the CTV market is uh, is due for a. Tr it's just early, you know. As much as we might think it's not early, because we it, we've been talking about it for a long time, I think it's really early. And what I mean by that is, when you talk about CTV with most people, what are they thinking about? Netflix, Hulu, Disney, etc. Uh, there is a world exploding in the fast channels. You know, the the free ad supported television. The volume of users is going to just keep exploding. I think we're going to see the buying move from what has been anchored in historically more of a linear model. I mean, I want to buy a certain show uh, to more of a programmatic model. I mean, I want to buy a certain audience, target a certain audience in a certain way. 
And I think there's a tremendous amount of evolution to occur there. It's all positive. I just think it's going to be once we start getting enough traffic and enough volume and, and enough access um, and you move away from what has historically been somewhat subscription dominated to much more advertising uh, dominated, I think it's going to be fascinating to watch how that evolves. And we're super excited about it. And I think it's going to be going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. Well, that's a great way to wrap. And, and I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this conversation, John. You have been on the front lines of reinvention and innovation and breaking new ground for a long period of time. And it's a great journey. Uh, you're very much in the midst of that journey. Uh, and we love the opportunity to uh, talk to you today on Great Minds and to partner with OpenX. You guys are really, really uh, doing incredible work. I love the sustainability platform that your employees have embraced it is, you know, I say this in the most non-hokey way, truly heartwarming and gives you hope, you know, for the future and sometimes hope's hard to find. Yeah. Well, Matt, look, I can't thank you enough. I've enjoyed the conversation. I've enjoyed the partnership over the years and, and look forward to a lot more stuff with you going forward. John, feel good. We'll talk soon. Yeah.